From Foreign Policy and the Brookings Institution, we bring you And Now the Hard Part. I'm Jonathan Tepperman. On each episode, we examine one vexing problem, trace its origin, and offer a way forward. Today, how to rebuild Africa's economies. Africa accounts for a very low share of world trade and the continent's export share as a proportion of global exports has been decreasing steadily. There is need to clear barriers preventing African countries from trading among themselves. Intra-Africa trade currently stands at a paltry 15%. Traders say they spend more time on paperwork and logistics than marketing their products and accuse neighboring countries of imposing trade restrictive measures. Bureaucracy is always supported by politics. If, for instance, our dear president here doesn't want something to happen, will it happen? I don't think it will. Political will plays the biggest role in as far as all what we do is concerned. Our guest today is Landre Signe. He's a native Cameroonian, an award-winning economist, and a Brookings Fellow. So, Laundry, you spend your time studying Africa's economic development. Let's start by identifying the problem. And I'm going to take a stab at it, and if I get it wrong, you correct me. It seems that despite um, many recent improvements and a lot of growth, many African economies are still struggling. And the African continent especially underperforms when it comes to trade. So I will say that when speaking about trade, it is true that Africa only represents about 2.4% of total global exports. And in 2017, for example, intra-Africa trade only represented about 17% of total African export. When we compare with Asia or Europe, you will have about 59% in Asia and about 69% in Europe. That means African economies are not trading with one another. A lack of access to trade and market information are the two main reasons for low intra-Africa trade on the continent. This according to industry leaders from Africa who say there is need to clear barriers. Absolutely. African economies are not trading enough uh, with one another. And I think that you've written that some African countries, in fact, trade more with Europe or Asia, countries and regions very far away than they do with their neighbors. Is that right? Uh, yes. However, since 2000, many of the fastest growing economies globally are located in Africa. So I want to make a distinction between perhaps the performance of African economies when it comes to trade, especially intra-African trade, and uh, the overall performance of African economy, which has substantially improved during the past couple of decades, especially when compared to the post-independent era. Right, right. So many of Africa's individual countries uh, or economies are growing very rapidly, but the continent as a whole, especially when it comes to trade, is really underperforming. Let's talk about what you think are Africa's most important economic assets right now that it should really be and in some ways is taking advantage of. Many of them, the population, the resources, as you know, by 2030, Africa will have about 1.7 billion people. 
and the combined consumer and business uh, spending will be about 6.7 trillion US dollars. So this represents a unique opportunity for the uh, continent to take a better place in the world. The planet's population is 7.5 billion and growing every year. By 2050, it's estimated to be close to 10 billion. This population boom will be dominated by one continent, Africa. So you've just described the reasons for Africa's potential, a a big market and a growing market, a large youthful population, a big supply of workers, natural resources, etc. What are the main impediments holding Africa back at at the moment? What are the barriers, especially when it comes to, to trade and development more generally? Uh, barriers to trade are numerous. For example, according to the World Bank's uh, 2018 Doing Business report, when it was only taking four documents to export from France, it was taking uh, about nine to ten documents in Angola or Congo. And for importing, uh, we have a similar situation, only four documents in France and about 11 documents in Central African uh, Republic. If trade is the lifeblood of the East African community, then blockages like these, with trucks waiting to get on a way bridge, are a clear threat to its economic health. Despite all the fine words about smooth flow of goods across borders, this is all too often the reality. Lorries stranded at border crossings and custom checkpoints all over the region. So the limited in traffic and trade has effects on industrial development, poverty, levels, job creation, especially for the youth population. As you know, in sub-Saharan Africa alone, over 70% of uh, the population is below the age of 35. And a youth in Africa now is twice as likely to be unemployed when he or she becomes an adult. And in addition, 70% of Africa's youth live below poverty line, if you also speak about women, especially the one involved in informal cross-border trade, they represent about 70% of the population. You mentioned red tape um, as one of them. What are the others? For example, is infrastructure a problem? Are there other barriers to trade? Absolutely. And that is not just for uh, trade between African nations or between Africa and the rest of the world but also within specific countries. For example, the rural and urban divide, so many producers, small farmers in rural areas will not be able to sell their products in cities. But we also have as challenge the level of economic diversification. So African economy remain profoundly connected to the uh, primary sector, so exports of raw materials, among other, instead of transformation and export globally. So to summarize the problem, Africa has this great potential economically. It is starting to show it in some places. There are numerous African economies that have been growing dramatically in recent years. But in one key area, Africa is not living up to its potential, and that's holding its back, and that's a lack of trade, um, or all of these barriers that remain to trade. And that is for a host of reasons, including bad bureaucracy, lots of red tape, poor infrastructure, a number of other things. Now let's move into 
the history and explain how we got there. So when you think about the origins of this problem, how far back do you go? Do you go back to just modern history or do you go all the way back to Africa's pre-colonial days? So let me start with this. I think the primary responsibility to scale up or speed up uh, African trade or regional integration and economic development lies with African leaders. So independently of the context, independently of history, so the primary responsibility lies with African leaders, of course, who should work closely with business, uh, civil society, and international uh, leaders. Having said that, it is true that African countries, when created, uh, we think if you think about the colonial era, where countries were organized from a very extractive and extroverted perspective. Colonization was motivated by the European hunger for African resources. The subsequent exploitation of the African people and the uprooting of their spiritual values by Christian missionaries would leave a permanent European stamp on the Which country. means that when African countries become independent, most of the developed sector were related to extractive industries, extraction of raw material. You're talking uh, about mining and, and things like that. Absolutely. A complex of South African, American, British, German, French, and Canadian companies puts the cheap labor to work. And the contract system pays a handsome profit. Uh, mining, agriculture, major infrastructures which were developed as well, such as major ports and railways, were built to support the extractive industry, mostly. The land may be poor to look at, but it is rich to dig. Diamonds, copper, lead, zinc. Over half a century after independence, I think that African leader cannot use uh, the colonial era now or the immediate post-colonial period to justify economic performance. So leaders should be held responsible and should adopt the right policy to diversify the economy, to develop the manufacturing and industrial uh, sectors in order to achieve the expected economic outcome. Bureaucracy is always supported by politics. If, for instance, our dear president here doesn't want something to happen, will it happen? I don't think it will. Why do you think there has been so little progress in the five or so decades since decolonization? So I think it's because of the low level of structural transformation. So many of the African countries have simply continued with the same type of policies which were adopted in the early uh, uh, post-colonial era. Do you mean uh, focusing on raw materials primarily? Absolutely. Focusing on the primary sector and, to a certain extent, the tertiary sector. So we have a missing middle, which is the level of uh, manufacturing and industrial development likely to absorb youth needing work. And when you say tertiary development, for those of us who aren't economists, what does that mean? So I speak especially, so we'll have uh, either the primary sector where we have the uh, mining, among other uh, agriculture, or we'll have the tertiary sector with uh, services. Uh, for example, you have small entrepreneurs providing services on the continent. 
I see. But manufacturing and industry and factories, those are the middle stage, and they've been underdeveloped in Africa. Absolutely. Definitely manufacturing remains underdeveloped. However, some of my colleagues at the Brookings Institution are doing some work on what we call industry without smokestacks, which include tourism, agro-industries. When speaking about Africa, most people will overlook those trajectories Uh, which present a tremendous potential. The African tourism industry is flourishing and it's thanks in great part to Africans. A new report by the UN Conference on Trade and Development shows four out of ten tourists in Africa come from the continent itself. Tourism in Africa supports more than 21 million jobs. I am curious whether the U.S.-China contest for influence in Africa today and China's Belt and Road Initiative and China's other overtures to Africa, of which we read a lot, whether that is also affecting uh, Africa's economic development today. Ethiopia's rapid industrialization is expected to be hugely sustained by the Belt and Road Initiative. Kenya is set to play an important role in China's belt. And Nigeria's government has expressed a great interest in the Belt and Road Initiative. have signed new agreements under the framework of the Belt and Road Initiative. So, I will look at it from a different perspective. African leaders have the choice, they have the opportunity to choose and to negotiate with uh, numerous partners. So if they are truly accountable, no leader can expect better partnership than the one which can deliver the most for uh, its own citizens. So uh, I don't necessarily think that it is an inconvenient to have the competition between great powers in Africa. Uh, What may not be appropriate is not to have African leader being representative of the will of their people. Chinese companies are building roads, pipelines, and railroads around the world. But the initiative is also building China's influence. Mm. Now, you grew up in Cameroon, correct? Absolutely. I was born and raised in Cameroon, and then from Cameroon I went to France, Canada, and then the U.S. I spent some time or so in the U.K., I'm just curious whether you or your family experienced firsthand some of the kind of problems that we're talking about. So um, let me speak about how the lack of infrastructure can affect the well-being of citizens, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, health, education, among other factors. So as I was growing up, I have seen some of my friends pass because of some of those challenges which are considered here in the U.S. as things which are really basic. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, I was educated in Cameroon. So we have the capability of providing the world with many educated people, competent people. But on the other hand, it's really critical for a leader to take your role more seriously and to serve the broader interest of the people to improve state capacity, to deliver basic public services and good, and to invest in uh, human capital development, infrastructure, uh, among other factors. Well, according to a Frost and Sullivan analysis of infrastructure development in sub-Saharan Africa, $174 billion is being invested in transport and logistics infrastructure in the region, $28 billion in the development of a major trans-African road, rail corridor. So let's focus now on 
the really hard part, which is what to do about all of these problems that we've been talking about and how to finally unlock Africa's great economic potential, especially on a continent-wide basis through trade. Um, if you were to identify one key thing, that one big difference that could make it happen, what would it be? I think it is the African continental free trade area. So this and is a I, giant free trade act that encompasses the entire continent? Absolutely, it encompasses all the African continent. And the goal is really to unlock Africa trade, uh, investment, and economic potential. And uh, you probably know it, uh, the CFTA will be the second largest uh, free trade area in the world after the sense creation of the World Trade Organization. It leaves open the possibility of a fully integrated pan-African economy with people, goods and services able to move freely, similar to the way the European Union works. So it shows the leadership of African leader on the world stage in trade affairs with strength uh, through uh, unity, contrarily of what is happening uh, in the rest of the world, such as in the UK and Europe uh, with Brexit. We're bracing ourselves for an extreme impact on the supply chain. Longer delivery times, less flexibility, which is a very essential quality. Uh, uh, U.S.-China trade wars. Some farmers in the U.S. say the disruption of normal trade with China has forced many of them to go bankrupt. African leaders are clearly showing that free trade are critical for development. Trade, not aid, has been the advocacy mantra for Africa's integration and grace. Sadly, despite the region's wealth in natural resources... Why do you think this concept, which, as you point out, has become really controversial in other parts of the world, which is free trade and uh, coming together under mutual rules, um, why do you think it's so appealing in Africa at this moment when... Britain is is moving away from the European Union when China and the United States are locked in a trade war. So this is extremely important because Africa only represents about 2.4% of total global exports. So even when constituting a continental bloc, the wealth of Africa in global trade will still... Uh, remain small. So African leaders do not have the choice to join forces if uh, they want to first unlock the potential at the continental level, create more jobs. It is clear that when African countries deal with between themselves, they exchange a higher proportion of manufactured products, over 40%, where when dealing with the rest of the world, they mostly deal with raw material. And when we speak about manufacturing, industrial development, we also speak about job creations. For example, by 2035, Africa will need about 450 million jobs. And as of now, the expected number is about 100 million of quality jobs. So we may have about 350 million jobs which will need to be created, for which creativity uh, will be extremely important. Africa has the world's largest population of young people and the highest rate of youth unemployment globally. Currently, 60% of the unemployed on the continent are youth. This will spiral to about 70% by 2050, according to the World Bank. And 
dealing through the continental free trade area would definitely constitute one of the solutions. A study also from the um, United Nations Economic Commission on Africa has uh, shown that the economic output will increase by over 29 billion by 2050. So a 52.3% annual growth as a result of uh, the agreement. That's, of course, in trade across the African continent. It's definitely a tremendous opportunity for African countries to remove the barriers of dealing with each other and to also constitute a better partner when engaging with global players when negotiating with the European Union. The European Union has shown interest in uh, having a trade agreement. And so those are substantial steps. And how will this African continental free trade area deal with some of the other problems that we've been talking about, like the lack of infrastructure, roads, etc., connecting the various parts of Africa to one another? So this is a very important question. And I think the African continental free trade area of a unique opportunity, but in order to be successful, uh, should also uh, benefit from uh, other policies. African leaders at the country level should also adopt policy which will facilitate the conduct of business, attract foreign direct investment. They should invest in human capital because when you speak about manufacturing, we speak about industrial development. We also speak about the importance of human capital, appropriate workers who will be able to seize those opportunities. We also speak about the administrative barriers when mentioning exporting from France or importing take a much uh, lower number of documents than in many countries. That is simply to illustrate that those processes should be simplified in order to boost the business potential. Can you imagine a future in which the free trade agreement leads to not just greater economic integration, but other forms of integration as well as economic integration has done in Europe, for example? I think that is the goal of African leaders. So trade is just one of the first steps. So ultimately, many have been speaking about a um, custom union, a uh, a unique currency, among other. So I definitely think that it is a great step forward, a more political integration beyond even the economic portion. Well, Landre Signe, thank you so much for coming in to talk to the podcast. Thank you very much. Economist Landre Signe is a fellow at the Brookings Institution, where he works on economics and development. Thanks for listening to And Now the Hard Part. I'm Jonathan Tepperman, FP's Editor-in-Chief. Our podcast is a collaboration between FP and the Brookings Institution. Our production staff includes Dan Efron, Rob Sachs, Maya Gandhi, Camilo Ramirez, Anna Newby, and Emily Horn. Next time on the podcast, how to combat the rise of illiberalism and authoritarian governments around the world. When we are reluctant to intervene, we can find ourselves waking up one morning and we have an illiberal state. Brookings president, the retired four-star general John Allen, argues for a greater U.S. role in restoring democratic values abroad. That's coming up next week.